My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. If you're a guest with us, love to welcome you. Uh, glad that you are here uh, this morning. We've been going through a series here in the fall called Weak and Needy. Uh, that's what you see up on the board. And the whole series is basically about this. Uh, those that come to Jesus uh, weak and needy, humble and broken, uh, Jesus approaches them in a far different or much different way than he approaches those that come to him proud and self-righteous. And so this series, we've been examining the difference, the contrast between how he deals with those that are, are humble and broken and those that are proud and self-righteous. We're going to continue uh, on that journey this morning. Uh, but I want to start out this morning by telling you guys a, uh, not a well-known fact about myself. I'll call it a, a secret. Um, and this is how much that I care about you guys, how much I love you, that I'm willing to share this with you. So I'm entrusting you with this. So I hope that this doesn't come back uh, to hurt me. But not many people know this about me, but I really enjoy watching people. I like to observe people. Now, before your mind start running to a bad place and you're like, man, this guy is really messed up. Let me explain uh, what I mean by observing people. Uh, When my wife and I got married 11 years ago, uh, at that time when I would buy clothing, uh, I would just buy whatever size that I needed. I wouldn't try it on. I would just assume, okay, uh, this shirt is a medium. This is going to fit me. I'm going to buy it. and I will take it home and I'll wear it. Uh, my wife has since taught me some wonderful lessons about clothing that not all mediums are built the same. Not all pants are cut the same way. And so she taught me that. And as she, she was teaching me as we went along. And so when we would go shopping for her, I found out that you try things on. And she would try a lot of things on. You got to make sure. And and I get this. I'm not a female, so I don't fully understand this. But they're just, you know, you really need to try it on as a female. So anyway, it would take some time to do that. That process was not as simple as what I would do is go in and pick a shirt out and buy it. It, it, It could take, you know, multiple minutes, maybe not hours, but minutes. And so... And I never, honestly though, I, I say that in jest, but I never mind, I, I really didn't mind waiting uh, because of this secret about me. So I would buy a, a large soda and I would sit in the mall out on the bench and I would just sit there and watch people. And what I would do is I would observe the differences because I'm fascinated and intrigued by the differences in the way that we do things. Certain people do certain things a different way. You know, I would observe the guy that's in his maybe early, mid-40s that still has a mullet. Nobody told him that, you know, the mullet went out of style like 20, over 20 years ago. I I would observe the two young teenagers, maybe 12, 13, holding hands as they walk through the mall. And I would think, man, I never did that. And then I would realize, oh, yeah, I did do that. Um, You know, the, the kid that has plugs in his ears. You know, and if you don't know what plugs are, they're those like big things that make your ear really, really long. And it's just interesting to me. Not right, wrong. I'm just intrigued by it. You know, what would make you want to put that in there? Or I would see the, the young lady that maybe is putting makeup on for the first time and nobody has taught her how to do it. So there's a lot of makeup and it's all in different places. Or maybe it's the mom that has just had it. She's done. And she is walking through the mall with her strong-willed child, dragging him by the arm as he backpedals as quickly as he can to keep up from falling down. And I'll be honest, there are times when I'm sitting there that I'll chuckle, you know, maybe not out loud, but I'll laugh at the, the differences between us, the way that we do things. 
Uh, but I'm going to venture a guess that all of us do this in some way. Because as I'm there, as I'm sitting there, I'm simply gathering information. I'm gathering information. And all of us do this in some way. I mean, think about this. You come home from work. You walk in your front door. There are things that you gather. There's information that you're gathering as you walk in the front door as to the mood of your household. Before the spoken word even happens, you know how that day has gone. All right? Or maybe you're at work, your coworkers. You can tell just by the way they come in that morning what kind of mood they are in. All right? So you're observing things. You're noticing things. You notice what makes them mad, what makes them laugh, what they think is funny, their tendencies, uh, how many cups of coffee they drink, why they drink all those cups of coffee. You notice different things. Even beyond this, um, I've noticed with social media, we observe a lot more. We see things a lot more. Like, for instance, let me give you an example. On Facebook, we notice those pictures that are put out there that maybe not everybody was supposed to see. You know, those, maybe it's a niece or a nephew or a friend or a cousin or someone that posted those pictures from that gathering that they were at. And you wonder to yourself as you look at those pictures, I wonder what was in that red cup. That probably wasn't Mountain Dew. Or you look at those pictures of that girl and you think, you know, she would never wear that to church. You observe things. You make note of things. Uh, even if with social media, we go even a step further. We notice how often people post things and how often those posts are about themselves. We're constantly, constantly gathering information. And the question I want us to ponder this morning or to think about this morning is this. What do I do with what I observe in others? What do I do with that information that I am gathering? So I want to jump into uh, the book of John this morning. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them up to the book of John. Uh, If you're new to the Bible, John is like three quarters of the way through. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then you'll find the book of John. We're going to look at John chapter 9. And I'm going to start out in verse 1. We're just going to read a couple verses here, and then I want to make a couple notes. All right, John chapter 9, verse 1. As he went along, this he being Jesus, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi or teacher, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened that the work of God might be displayed in his life. Now, I want to stop there. I want to make uh, an observation. Isn't it interesting that the disciples in Jesus, they're walking along, they come along this man that is blind from birth, and the disciples make this observation. They ask this question, who sinned? They automatically assume that someone has sinned, that this man, he's afflicted with The blindness. So they automatically make this assumption. And I want to take a second here to make a quick note about something. Sin leads to suffering. But suffering is not always a direct result of sin. Alright? Sin leads to suffering, but suffering is not always a direct result of sin. Let me give you an example of this. If I were to live a promiscuous lifestyle, alright? 
if I were to go around and sleep around, I would be sinning. All right, because God has established his design is one man, one woman, and for life. Okay, and that, that's within that bounds. That's where sexual activity can take place. So if I were to go outside of that design, we would consider that sin. Now, let's say while I'm living this promiscuous lifestyle, I contract AIDS. The, the suffering and subsequent death that will probably result from me contracting that is a direct result of my choices. I made those choices to go out and do that, and now I have to suffer with the result of that, okay? But let me paint another picture for you. Let's say I I come down with some sort of uh, disease, and I need to have a blood transfusion. So I go to the hospital, they hook me up, I do a blood transfusion, and they've made a mistake. And I contract AIDS through the blood transfusion. Now, my suffering and my subsequent death, because I probably can't afford the medicine to keep me alive, would be the same. But it wasn't a, re- it wasn't a result of my sin. It wasn't anything that I had done, but I am suffering not because of my sin, but because of uh, just the circumstances. I, I want to share a couple others with you here, because there's a ton of examples of this. If any of you have ever experienced a miscarriage... Uh, about four years ago, my wife and I went through this. And I remember clearly as we were sitting there, the doctor sitting there and saying, there was nothing that you did that brought this on. It wasn't something you did. Now, I realize she's a medical doctor and she wasn't uh, up to date on my spiritual condition or my wife's spiritual condition. But the, the message was clear. It wasn't something you did. Another one, how about Illness. There's a lot of you sitting out here this morning that you may be experiencing chronic pain from something. Or maybe you're going through an illness of some sort. It's not always a direct result of sin. There are times that we get sick and it has nothing to do with sin. Or the death of a loved one. If you've ever mourned the loss of a loved one, you are suffering. But it's not because of anything you've done. You're grieving. How about this one? Natural disasters, flooding, earthquake, blizzards, hurricanes, you name it, tornadoes. Now, in the Old Testament, God would judge people and there would be natural disasters, earthquakes. You can find that in the Old Testament. And it's true that it's coming again in the New Testament. God also talks about the earthquakes coming and all those things. And we could get into all that. But you name a natural disaster that has occurred throughout human history. And there are people that live in those areas that didn't bring that upon themselves. The flooding didn't happen because of sin in their life. The hurricane didn't hit their home because of something they did. I want to give you another example of this in the book of Job. Job is an excellent example of this. Uh, Job chapter 1. Just to give you some of the backstory, if you're unfamiliar with Job. uh, Job was a man that even... That God proclaimed as righteous. Okay? God said, Job is an upstanding man. And there's this moment where Satan actually comes to God in, that, in this story, in the first, first chapter of John. And Satan comes to God and he says, yeah, Job is a righteous man and he worships you because of all the things that you have given him. 
You protect him. Let me tear all those things away and he will stop worshiping you. He will stop bringing you glory. And so God says, okay, you can do it. Just don't take his life. And what happens in Job chapter one is Satan begins to systematically dismantle Job's life. And we'll pick up the story in verse 18. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house. When suddenly a mighty wind, perhaps a tornado, swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them and they are dead. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up and he tore his robe and he shaved his head. And then he fell to the ground in worship and said... Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Job suffers greatly, and it's it's not a direct result of his sin. It's not a result of his sin. Now, I want to point out another group here that may be suffering as well. Um, There are times when we suffer... Suffering can also be a result of someone that, or a result of sin that someone else has committed against you. Let me say that again. Suffering can also be a result of sin that someone else has committed against you. If you are here this morning and you've been in, abused in any way, physically, emotionally, sexually, you are suffering in some way. And it's not because of anything that you have done. It's because of the sin that somebody else has committed against you. I have seen this a great deal in my work with teens. I've seen this happen a lot. I've seen the young girl that struggles with an eating disorder because her parents have told her she's overweight. I've seen the young guy that struggles to apply himself in school and he's constantly in trouble. And the reason is because his dad has never been there to encourage him. And when his dad is around, he only reminds him how much of a failure he is. Or what about the young girl that is given towards uh, sexual activity? And we see that, we observe that. But the reason she does that is because she runs to men to find uh, acceptance. Because her father has abused her. We, we make all these observations, but what do we do with what we observe? I would ask the question again. What are we doing with that information that we observe about others, the things that we see in others? What are we doing with that? Do we move in their direction or do we simply stand on the sidelines, see what's happening and step back and just watch it happen? Let's go back to John chapter 9. Let's look at Jesus, how Jesus handles this. I'm going to start in verse 1 again. John chapter 9. He, Jesus, went along and he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world... I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Shalom. 
Now, what's interesting to me here is what's happening is the disciples are having a debate. All right. They want Jesus to answer a theological question for them. And they're not interested in engaging this man and having compassion on him. They just want Jesus to settle the debate for them. And the debate is this. In the Old Testament, uh, in the book of Exodus, God says this. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. See what that last line says there? He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. So the disciples are thinking about this question and they're saying, Jesus, son of God, will you answer this question for us? Who sinned, this man or his parents? Now, what's funny to me here is he's asking, they're asking this question. And I would ask you, how does one sin before they're born? How does one sin before they're born? I don't know how that happens. Like, was it, uh, you know, mom ate Mexican the night before, and so he's upset now, and so he's kicking at mom? Is that how he sins? I'm not sure how that happens, but that's the question they're asking. They're saying, did he sin before he was born, or was it his parents? And so what they want is they want an answer from Jesus. Now, one of the things that I think happens to us As we read the Bible, sometimes we can just glaze over things. We can read through things without really plugging ourselves in to the, to what's happening here. So I want you to, for a second, to just plug in and put yourself in this place with the disciples. And here you are, you come upon this man that is blind and you want the answer to this question. And Jesus basically tells you, listen, you're all wrong. Nobody sinned. You're all wrong. You all have this wrong. And Jesus steps into the scenario and he has compassion on the man. And what he does to bring healing to this man is he spits. Think about this. Put yourself there. Okay, here you are. You've been walking, following this man that you believe is the son of God. You're starting to believe it because you've seen the miracles and you've seen the things he's done. And you're starting to believe that this man may actually be the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for, the God that is to come. And here he is, he spits on the ground and he makes mud. He picks up the mud and wipes it on the man's face. Now, what would you be doing if you were sitting there or standing there in that moment? I think I would be like, dude, if you're God, you don't have to spit on the ground. Like, couldn't you just like say be healed or put your hand on the man or come up with some other way other than spitting. But isn't it interesting? Jesus spits on the ground, makes mud out of the ground and wipes it on the man's eyes and he heals the man. And what we see here is Jesus moving in the man's direction. Jesus observes the man's need. He sees it. I would suggest to you the disciples saw it. And there were things the disciples could have done. But they weren't interested in the man. They were interested in their debate. But Jesus sees the man's need. And what does he do? He moves in his direction. He has compassion on the man and he heals him. I want to look at a couple examples of this, of how Jesus responds. That's what this series is. We've been looking at what Jesus does and how he responds to those that are weak and needy. 
So let's look at a couple. John chapter 4. John chapter 4. You don't need to turn there. We'll have it up here. Forgive me, my mouth is really dry this morning, so I'm battling that. But John chapter 4, let me give you some of the backstory here of what's happening in case you're not familiar with this. Uh, The Jews and the Samaritans at this time period hated each other. I can't state that enough. They hated one another. Samaritans were half Jewish and they were, they had intermingled with the nations surrounding them. Back uh, many years before this story happens, the Assyrians invaded uh, Judea, Jerusalem. And what God had told the Jews clearly was don't intermingle with the other nations that are coming. All right. Don't, don't mingle with them because what will happen is you will begin to worship other gods. God isn't interested in us worshiping him and other gods. And so he said, don't intermarry. Don't do it. But the Samaritans did. And so the Jews, the ones that were zealous uh, for God, they hated the Samaritans for it. So what we find in this story is we find some racism is going on here. We also see some religious tension that is happening. And so there's a lot going on in this story. And Jesus, he's on his way from Jerusalem up to Galilee, and he passes through Samaria. Jews did not associate with Samaritans. It just doesn't happen. But what we see here is Jesus breaks those cultural boundaries to move in somebody's direction. So let's look at the story. Verse 4. Now he, again being Jesus, had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from his journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now let me make an observation here. The sixth hour. If it's believed that the time of this meeting was about 12 noon, okay? Because if you start at dawn or daybreak, count the hours from six in the morning you would get to noon. Now, it's interesting that there's a woman going to draw water at the middle of the day, in the middle of the day. Think about this. If you lived in a place where you did not have running water, it wasn't like you woke up, you turned the shower on, or you went downstairs, you filled the the pot of coffee with water, you know, dumped it in the thing. You couldn't do that. All right? So you lived in a place where you had to go to a well to draw water. What would be your first chore of the day? Most likely it would be to go and get water, all right? So it's believed that this woman here, it may be that she was here in the middle of the day because she was disconnected from her community. She was ostracized by her community. She didn't want to be at the well when everybody else was there because they didn't want her there. It's just an observation. So verse 7, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. It was culturally backward for Jesus to associate with her. First, he was a man associating with a woman alone, was looked down upon in that time. He was a Jewish rabbi, a teacher, associating with a Samaritan. Again, something that was looked down upon. And what's interesting is he asks her for a drink. And yet he has nothing to get a drink with. And she makes note of this. 
She says, we'll go on, verse 10 here. Jesus answered, if you, know, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Verse 11, sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? It would be completely unheard of for Jesus to drink from the same cup as the Samaritan woman. So again, he's going across these cultural boundaries. Verse 12, are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and his herd? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty And have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you have have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Now it's interesting. There's a lot going on in this story. And Jesus observes, he knows, and some of this is because he's the son of God. He has this information about how many husbands she's had. He has this information about the fact that the man that she is with right now is no longer, or is not her husband. So he has some of this information, but he's observing all of these things. And it's interesting that in spite of all that is going on in her life, he's moving in her direction. He's moving in her direction. In spite of all that he knows. And is there sin in this story? Yeah, sure, there is. Is she suffering because of sin that others have committed against her? Most likely, yes. And in spite of all that's going on, Jesus isn't afraid. Jesus isn't afraid of the sin. Because he died on the cross to conquer it. Jesus knows that he has the answer for her. All the suffering that is going on in her life, all the pain that is in her heart, he has the answer. And he's willing to walk through all the baggage, all the garbage that is in her life to reach her and give her that answer. He's willing to enter into the mess that her life is right now and introduce himself as the answer. We'll jump way ahead in the story. John chapter 4, verse 25 and 26. This is how Jesus responds to her. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ, the one that's going to set us free, the one that's going to save us, he's coming. And when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. And Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Jesus introduces himself as the solution He introduces himself as the one that can set her free from all that suffering, all that hurt, all the sin. He's introducing himself. And I put myself in this story, as I told you before, I think it's good for us to plug into scripture. To not just read it and glaze over it, but think about it. And I put myself at that well. And I'm sitting on that rock and this woman walks up to me. And I know all the cultural boundaries. Now, sure, I don't know all the things that Jesus knew because I'm not a prophet. I'm not the son of God. But there are things that I would have observed. 
And would I have engaged her, not engaged to be married, but talked to her, heard her story, took some time to interact with her? And I honestly think the answer to that question is no. And I'm speaking for me personally. And here's why I say that. Several months ago, back in June, uh, the, the senior high staff and some of the senior high students, we took a trip up to Queens, New York. And we went into a very poor part of Queens. Jamaica, Queens, if you've ever been there, is extremely poor. But there is one section of Jamaica, Queens that uh, is very commercialized. You can find anything basically there on this one avenue. And this is the one avenue, Jamaica Ave, that we were, while we were there, we were allowed to walk around on. They let us walk on Jamaica Ave and they basically said, don't go anywhere else. Actually, one of the policemen, I had my phone, my uh, iPhone, and I was using it for something. And he said to me, you know, you might not want to walk around with that uh, off of this avenue because you probably won't go home with it. So he made that observation. But they let us walk, uh, they let us walk on Jamaica Ave. And so we got done the one day. We were done with a, a somewhat long day. It was like 3.30. The, the students were hungry, of course, as teenagers always are hungry. And they wanted us to take them to go get something to eat. So I said, sure, we'll go. And as we're walking, we come to Taco Bell. Now, I'm not a big fan of Taco Bell. I don't really like Taco Bell. I wasn't interested in getting Taco Bell. But teenagers are very interested in Taco Bell. So they're like, this is where we want to go. So we walk to the Taco Bell. And outside of the Taco Bell, there's this, this woman that's probably in her low, maybe mid-40s. And she's sitting by the door of the Taco Bell. And she is filthy. I mean, just covered in dirt. And she has a little boy with her that he couldn't have been more than five, maybe four or five years old. And she's holding a cardboard sign. Uh, It was just a cut out piece of cardboard. And it said, I have nowhere to go. And I have three children. It said something to that effect. I don't remember it exactly. But I remember as I walked past her, I wondered, I wonder how she got here. I wonder what got her to this place. And I made that observation, but we walked into the restaurant I didn't do anything. I didn't interact with her. I didn't say anything to her. We just went into the restaurant and the the students are ordering and I'm talking with some of them. And one of the young ladies in our group comes up to me and she says, Chris, could I give her $5? And all of a sudden the, the parent in me started kicking in and I was like, You know, we don't know how she got here. We don't know what she's going to do with that $5. You know, is she going to spend it on something that is only going to hurt her? You know, should we really do that? And much to my shame, I was thinking, "Ah, probably not. But I thought, you know what? It's your $5. So I said, you know, you can do whatever you want with that $5. If you want to give that to her, you go ahead. Feel free. And so she did. And another girl in our group, Uh, there was an outside vendor that would cut up fruit. They sold fruit in like Ziploc bags. I've never seen anything quite like that. But there was this sliced mango stand where they had a bunch of sliced mangoes and you could buy it. It was just in a normal Ziploc bag. It was like $2 for a couple slices of mangoes. And one of the girls went out and bought two bags of the mangoes and gave them to the woman. And they had compassion on her. And I learned a great lesson in that moment. I thought, you know, these students didn't, think of all of those things that I was thinking about, like how did she get here? And maybe she did something that it was her own fault that she ended up here. They just had compassion on the woman. They just served her. Said, it doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you've done. We want to serve you. And that's what they did. They had compassion on her. 
There's another story that I want to look at. I told you we'd look at two examples. We'll look at the second one here in John chapter 8 of how Jesus responds uh, to the weak and needy. John chapter 8. I'm just going to read the story and then we'll talk about it. I'll draw a couple observations at the end. Verse 2, John chapter 8. At dawn he appeared, this being Jesus, again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him. And he sat down to teach them. And the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. And they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until... Jesus, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. This woman that's caught in the the midst of adultery, is there sin involved? Yeah, there's sin involved. But what Jesus does is he sees her in the midst of her need and he moves in her direction. At a moment when the self-righteous and the proud are all standing there and they're all ready to throw the first stone, they, they want to stone this woman and condemn her for the sin that she has committed. And what Jesus does in that moment is he stands up for her integrity as a woman that was created in the image of God and despite all the things that have gone on in her life, despite all the suffering that is there because of her own sin and because of the sin that others have committed against her, he moves in her direction. And he introduces himself as the answer. And he asks her, go and leave your life of sin. I want to take a second this morning to talk to two groups of people. If you're in the room this morning and you say, I am a follower of Jesus, I have put my faith in him, I believe in him, and I am serving him with all that I have, I want to take a minute to talk to you. If you're in the room and you're here this morning, you say, I don't believe in Jesus, I'm just here exploring, maybe somebody drug you here, I'm glad you're here, and I just invite you to listen in on what I'm about to say. But what I'm about to say doesn't necessarily apply to you. So you can listen in, and hopefully you can take something from it. But Adam told us last week in his message that the only thing, the only thing that separates us from the world is Jesus. That's the only thing that separates us from the world. We need to be reminded of that. I want to share with you a a passage that comes out of the book of Titus. I added it late, so forgive me, it's not on the PowerPoint. If you want to write it in your notes, it's Titus chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 3 to 7. And I just ask you to just sit and listen to this passage as Paul talks to Titus. And Paul writes some things here uh, that are extremely challenging to me and I think all of us. Verse 3. At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of His rebirth and the renewal by the Holy Spirit, 
whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, justified by his grace, not the things that we've done, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. I want to challenge us this morning, again, talking to those that say they are followers of Jesus Christ. I want to challenge us with two scenarios this morning. I want you to think about next week, if a woman walks through our doors, a single mom, she walks in with her two kids, and we make this observation, we notice. But she's not single because her husband has died. She's single because she's left him. How will we respond Will we sit there and think, oh, I wonder how they got to that place. Or I wonder if she had an adequate reason to leave him. Or will we simply have compassion on her and move in her direction and want to get to know her story and want to introduce her to the one that has set us free. The one that has relieved the pain and the suffering for us. Or let me give you another example or scenario possibly. Say a man walks through those doors and he's a confessed homosexual. And he's coming here to find out if there's an answer here for him. He's coming here to find out, is there any truth in this person of who Jesus is? How would we respond to that man? My guess is we would smile and we'll wave and we'll say hello, but we'll stay just far enough away that he'll feel uncomfortable and eventually leave. I mean, would we invite him? And I'm preaching to myself here. So I'm just joining you to listen in. But would we invite him into our home? After the service, would we say, come have lunch with us? Or would we invite him into our life group and say, there's a group of people that I love so much and you got to meet them. You got to meet them. You got to sit down with them because they have quite the story to tell. I wonder if we would do that. It's not a sin to have compassion on a sinner. It's not a sin to have compassion on a sinner. It is not a sin to move in their direction. And the reason that I know this, the reason that I am so convinced of this, is because Jesus did it with me. Jesus did it with me. He found me, this prideful, lustful, self-centered teenager. And he stepped into my life and he said, You know, there's sin in your life, sure. There's suffering in your life. Maybe not to the extent that others have experienced it, but there is. But let me show you who I am. Let me show you that I can set you free, that I can be the one that heals the hurt, that I can give you a purpose and a reason to live, that I can give you something greater than anything that you have ever experienced. That's what Jesus has done for me. And I would tell you this morning, if he can do it for me, He can do it for any one of us. Now, I told you I want to talk to the other people in the room. Those of you that are here this morning, for whatever reason brought you, let me say that I'm glad you're here. I know it takes courage and boldness to walk into this place if you are not a follower of Jesus. And I thank you that you are here. And let me tell you that the one that can bring you the healing from whatever it is that you are carrying right now, whether it's emotional pain or, or physical pain, whatever it is, Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer. And if, if you'd like to talk about that more, I would love to talk about that more with you. Uh, feel free to come forward after the service. Find me, find Pastor Adam. 
Maybe it's the person that you came with. But we would love to tell you about this person that has set us free because that's why we gather together. Now, I started off the morning talking about the blind man. That's where we started in John chapter 9. We were talking about Jesus and how he handled this man that was born blind. And if you run through the story, it's an excellent story. I'd encourage you all to look through it this week, maybe in your quiet time. But it's an excellent story. And you'll get to this place where the Pharisees and the teachers of that day, the rulers at the time, they wanted to know how this man was healed. And so they bring this man in for questioning. And they say, isn't this man, this Jesus, the one that healed you? Isn't he a sinner? And the man simply responds. He doesn't have all the answers. He doesn't have everything put together yet. But he simply responds and says, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. Now, the rest of scripture would obviously tell us that Jesus was not a sinner. He was the only person to ever walk this earth without committing sin. And that's why when he died on the cross, his blood that he shed for us could set us free. Because he was the perfect sacrifice. So the man says that and then he says, All that I know, all that I have, is I was blind, and now I can see. He basically says, you figure that out. I love to talk and debate about theology and doctrine. I honestly do. I like it. I know I'm a weirdo, but I like it. And if you want to talk about theology or doctrine, you can come up, and I would love to talk to you about it. But when you boil everything down that's inside of me, when you boil it all down, all the knowledge that I've accumulated over the years, all the books that I've read, all the studies that I've done, it all boils down to one simple thing. And my testimony is eerily similar to that of the blind man. I was spiritually blind and unable to see the ugliness of my own sin. But Jesus stepped in and he opened my eyes. And now I can see. And he set me free. That's my testimony. That's what I have to take to the world. That's what I have to take to those people that I interact with every single day. That don't yet know Jesus. That's the story that I can tell them. What we're going to do now is... Barb's going to come up in just a second and she's going to play for us after I pray. But I would challenge you during this time to reflection. If you need to do business with God this morning, if there's things that are going on in your heart, now's the time. Do that. If you're here this morning and you haven't yet put your faith in Jesus, I'd encourage you to think about it. Pray. Take some time. But take this time to just simply do business with God. Let me pray and then Barb will come up and play. Father, I I thank you for your grace upon me, a sinner. I thank you for Jesus, the one that came to set me free to set us free. God, I pray that you would help us in the midst of our need, in the midst of being weak and needy. Would you help us, God? Draw us close to you. God, forgive us for the times that we've been proud, self-righteous, and we've looked down on others because of where they're at. Father, I repent of that. I ask that you would forgive me of that. Father, help me in those moments where I see the needs in others. Will you help me to not just observe them, but move in their direction. In Jesus' name, amen.